Hello there. Welcome to this week's edition of Objective Health. I am your co-host for today. My name is Elliot. I'm joined with my co-hosts, Doug and Erica. And as always, Damien in the background. So in today's show, we're actually going to talk about a very recent systematic review, which was published, which claims to have found very little or no evidence that there is a connection between serotonin and depression. In other words, it calls into question the concept that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are the primary form of medications prescribed to millions of people to treat depression, may not be working. So uh, the systematic review was published July 2022. It's titled... The Serotonin Theory of Depression, a systematic umbrella review of the evidence. So these guys, hats off to them. They really did a lot of great work. They looked at multiple different studies. They were looking at studies which um, were focusing on different ways to measure serotonin. They were looking at um, a lot of the ways, like, for instance, the cerebrospinal fluid, um, the concentrations of serotonin uh, breakdown products. They were looking, they, they looked at a bunch of different stuff. Um, and the overall conclusion that they came to was the main areas of serotonin research provide no consistent evidence of there being an association between serotonin and depression and no support for the hypotheses that depression is caused by lowered serotonin activity or concentrations. Some evidence was consistent with the possibility that long-term antidepressant use reduces serotonin concentration so very interesting now we have this theory which is a little bit like the theory that we spoke about on last week's show on amyloid beta being the cause of alzheimer's well in this case it was assumed there was research which was performed uh, a while ago several decades now and they uh they found a potential connection between serotonin and depressive behaviors. And so they came up with the hypotheses that therefore uh, depression must be a deficiency or a relative deficiency of serotonin in various regions of the brain. Serotonin, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a neurotransmitter. Um, it is produced uh, all throughout the body, actually. There's a lot of it which is produced in the gut, um, but it's uh, an important, it's, it's thought to be very important for the brain function, for mood for um for uh how people think and how they feel okay and there's lots of different kind of theories as to exactly what it's doing like the other, other neurotransmitters no one knows exactly what it does but it's thought to be involved in um motivation and um uh uh satisfaction and these kinds of things so yeah basically this spawned a bunch of research and the development of several different types of drugs as we know, uh, one of those is SSRIs. What these basically function to do is prevent the reuptake of serotonin. Therefore, it's, 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 uh, it persists in between the neurons for a longer period of time. What this basically does is it means that there's more serotonin to act on the adjacent neuron, which theoretically preserves serotonin or the lack of serotonin that they thought that people might have. Uh, the kind of brand name for this is Prozac in the US, but there's lots of different types and there's various kind of 
forms. They've modified the molecules in various ways to have slightly different effects. But there's a bunch of different uh, SSRIs. Now, as we've spoken about several years ago in the show, I think we even did a show about serotonin prior. Um, but these drugs have had, well, they have been associated with some pretty nasty long-term consequences. Um, they've been associated with depression. They've been associated with suicidal ideations, suicidal tendencies, um, other health conditions. They might be associated with inflammatory conditions, for instance. And that's because there is some research which would indicate that serotonin can have somewhat of a stress hormone-like activity against cells. So it can enhance inflammation. It can enhance oxidative stress. It can worsen function. There may be some possible connection between uh, high serotonin and cancer. In fact, serotonin has been associated with various types of cancer. So there are genuine concerns about using this drug. And so this has been picked up by many of the big tabloids, many of the news agencies, uh, and it's been one of the headlines over the past week uh, because it comes as a bit of a shock to many people who weren't familiar with this concept before. Uh, biological psychi psychiatry or medical psychiatry medicine as a whole has adopted this theory and gone full throttle with it. Um, and that has really led to the widespread um, prescription, unnecessary prescription or prescribing of F SSRIs for a variety of different conditions. And this isn't just depression. SSRIs have been prescribed for a variety of different psychiatric diagnoses. So, um, so yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what we're going to talk about in today's show. Yeah. I just find it quite funny. You were talking about side effects, Elliot. And, you know, you've got an antidepressant that has a list of side effects like anxiety, violent thoughts, violent actions, suicidal thoughts, suicide, actual suicide, that's a side effect, criminal behavior, paranoia, and psychosis. Like, why has nobody really looked at this more carefully before? It just seems kind of insane to me that you're supposed to be treating a psychological condition and the side effects are worse psychological conditions. I don't know. It's like, there's been something fishy about this from the beginning, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's that the, you know, Prozac has been out since what, what the eighties, I guess, or the seventies. Um, and it's Not like sure. right from the beginning, there were some people like we're, we're sounding the alarm about this saying, no, 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 this isn't good. There's something wrong here. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just, it's kind of stunning that, uh, I mean, the other thing is too that, you know, like you said, Elliot, we've done a show on this before. And the thing is that this isn't really new. Like there's been people questioning the, the serotonin theory, the brain chemical imbalance theory, right? You know, it's so common now that everybody just assumes that if anybody's got anything wrong with their brain, there's a chemical imbalance going on. But there's been like, you know, I saw um, Dr. Emily Dean um, put out a tweet and she said, like, I don't know why this is gaining so much traction now when people have been talking about this for 30 years, that the, the, yep. the serotonin model of depression is not accurate and that there's, you know, there might be something, you know, serotonin might play into it somehow. But the whole idea that if you're depressed, it's because you have low serotonin is not true. And it hasn't been and people have known that it's not true for a very long time. I guess it just takes a, so an article like this to trickle down into the mainstream. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's been known for a very long time because there have been studies on drugs which have antidepressant effects, genuine antidepressant effects. 
And uh, one particular drug is called tianapetine. Tianapetine, I think mm. that's how you pr pronounce it. Now, this is a selective serotonin reuptake enhancer. Oh. Now, what this means is it actually reduces serotonin levels. And this has been used very effectively to treat people with depression. Mm. Okay. Uh, so, like, if you have a drug which increases serotonin, then you have a drug which decreases serotonin. And both of them have been used in some cases to have positive effects on depression. Because I don't think anyone's calling into question that for some reason, SSRIs seem to help some people because they do seem to. Question is, we don't know why. Or the mechanism of serotonin uh, uh, enhancement or reuptake inhibition is not necessarily the right mechanism. Because if you have a drug, two drugs which do opposite things, and in relation to serotonin, and yet they both have antidepressant effects, then you've got to look for another mechanism of action, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to consider that it's probably got nothing to do with serotonin. There have been people who've been talking about this for decades, and there's been lots of conflicting evidence. It's only now that you've got a really widespread systematic review that has basically got, gained traction. But there have been several other meta-analyses, several other reviews, which have called into question uh, the concept that serotonin has any effect on depression. Yeah. Yeah, I have uh, a, an interesting little tidbit of information here. There's a book called A Mind of Your Own by Dr. Kelly Brogan. And she, this is uh, for women basically about depression, but just like you were saying, Elliot, in uh, she has a chapter in her book called Truth Serum Coming Clean about the serotonin myth. And it's basically exactly what we're talking about here. And this was written in 2016. And she says, after six decades of study, um, having revealed conflicting, confusing and inconclusive data, um, the, there has never been a human study that successfully links low serotonin levels to depression. Imaging studies, blood, urine tests, postmortem suicide assessments, even animal research have never validated the link between neurotransmitter levels and depression. In other words, the serotonin theory of depression is a total myth that has been unjustly supported by the manipulation of data. And uh, she goes on to just talk about how it is, uh, you know, good for pharma you know, to, to just have an easy, the medical industry isn't selling a cure, they're selling the sickness. And kind of to add to what you were saying about just all the different illnesses now that SSRIs are used to treat, uh, this kind of was really shocking. PMS, anorexia, obsessive compulsive disorder, irritable bowel syndrome, binge eating, anger management, hot flashes, migraines, uh, inflammatory diseases of the joints. And um, so basically an umbrella of a lot of things. So just muddying the waters, I guess. I mean, as you were saying, like some people do have benefits from these, but do we really know the mechanism in which it works? Well, <clears throat> there was an article that um, was published on Psych Central, but we've got it up on SOT.net. And it was called Truth Emerging, More Psychiatrists Question, Low Serotonin Theory of Depression. Now, this, this article came out in uh, July of 2015. So that's, you know, seven years ago. So already, like, the, the, just to show that this isn't really uh, 
you know, blockbuster news. But I just wanted to read a, a certain part from this uh, article. Um, so they're talking about the journal Neuroscience and Biobehavioral Reviews. Uh, they claim that the research indicates an elevated, an, an ele excuse me, an elevation of serotonin in many types of depression. The higher levels of serotonin during depressive episodes help focus people's minds on conscious thought to look for a way out of the problem they believe. Given that, in their opinion, their serotonin serotonergic system evolved to regulate energy, it follows that by increasing serotonin. SSRIs disrupt energy homeostasis and often worsen symptoms during acute treatment. They go on to state that symptom reduction is not achieved by the direct pharmacological properties of SSRIs, but by the brain's compensatory responses that attempt to restore energy homeostasis. So in other words, the SSRI or the uh, serotonin is going up to help deal with the problem. And by adding more serotonin, you're actually forcing the brain to overcome that as more of a problem. And that that might be why it works for some people because the brain is working so hard to get over it. Kind of like a uh, hormetic, um, yeah. hormetic stimulus. So that's an interesting yeah. theory. Yeah, serotonin has been linked with the stress response, the biological response to stresses, right? And this is like a, a fairly unknown thing um there is a, a biochemist who i don't agree with on on every point without a doubt but he's done some fascinating work his name is dr ray pete in on the concept of serotonin being a a response to stresses and you don't want to do things which enhance that right it's like a mechanism to tell you or it's involved um in learned helplessness for instance this is extremely high in fact uh, what might show as low on a test if they actually look at the the brain cells themselves and look at the levels rather than in a in the blood, for instance, but look in the cells, there's very high serotonin. In fact, when cells are uh, damaged, they release high amounts of serotonin. When um, th there's 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 lots of evidence which would suggest that serotonin is something that needs to be tightly modulated based on uh, how your body. Uh, perceives any situation at any one given time it's like when you when you when you come in artificially and try to pump up one neurotransmitter uh that's potentially going to have negative downstream cons consequences and like you just said doc there's this concept of like a hormetic response perhaps by enhancing or increasing the amount of bioavailable serotonin um there's a there's a response to that now there is some evidence which would say that um these these drugs which enhance serotonin levels uh initiate a compensatory response in one of the neurohormones called allopregnenolone now i know allopregnenolone has been associated with a variety of different positive effects so it's it's uh, very useful for brain injury, for instance. It, again, when the brain is under any kind of inflammation or immune challenge, uh, the production of allopregnenolone will come in and, and basically try to counteract those effects and reduce inflammation. For one of those reasons, um, an example would be a traumatic brain injury. What they found is that by administering allopregnenolone, you can effectively protect or you can mitigate some of the damage caused by traumatic brain injury. On the other hand, serotonin might enhance that injury. So, so it is very interesting. And what they found is that by giving these drugs, there is this compensatory increase in brain allo levels or allopregnenolone levels. So it's thought that one of the reasons why 
some people may see beneficial effects from these drugs, like you mentioned, is that it may be enhancing kind of the body's own anti-inflammatory pathways. Now, there's another study titled The Anti-Inflammatory Role of SSRI and SNRI in the Treatment of Depression. So it says it is basically a review. Um, and the results are that SSRIs and SNRIs decrease the neuroinflammation through multiple mechanisms, including the reduction of blood or tissue cytokines, which are basically pro-inflammatory pro chemicals made by the, the immune system, regulating complex inflammatory pathways, including uh, NF-kappa-beta, uh, including uh, activated B cells, inflammasomes, toll-like receptor 4, basically all of these different things which are involved in the innate inflammatory response. Um, Therefore, it says uh, they show these, right, okay, so the drugs show these effects in association, in association with an antidepressant action. So in other words, when the drugs are, in, are, are, are having an anti-inflammatory effect, this coincides with antidepressant action. Interesting, right? Yeah. Now, Very interesting. It begs the question, well, what actually is depression? Is it an imbalance of neurotransmitters? Is it something more complex? Is it something more holistic? Are there multiple causes of depression? I think there probably are, right? So it may be something to do with some kind of neurochemical imbalance that's way too complicated, uh, or, or way a lot more complex than simply a deficiency in one neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. I think that's possible because many people do tend to respond positively using various nutrients which are known to be precursors for different neurotransmitters such as dopamine or neuroadrenaline or whatever so it does seem as though neurochemicals are involved but there's also a, a very large body of research a very large body of research looking at the the cause of depression or one of the common findings and this is based on the most recent scientific evidence and one of the most consistent findings being an element of neuroinflammation as in the brain becomes inflamed, the immune system becomes activated, and there can be numerous causes for this. But the brain becomes activated, the Im immune system becomes activated in the brain, and you end up with excessive firing, you end up with damage to the tissue in the brain, you end up with oxidative stress in the brain, and depression is merely a side effect of a physical stress that's occurring in the central nervous system. Yeah, and I mean, one of the, um, I've heard it mentioned before that one of the, the, the possible ways that these SSRIs are actually working is because they do have an anti-inflammatory effect. That, um, you know, just all the stuff about serotonin aside, that there is an anti-inflammatory effect from these drugs, and that some people who are actually benefiting from them, it might have nothing to do with the fact that their serotonin is, is uh, being um, blocked from being reuptaken that it might actually just be that it's an anti-inflammatory, which makes me think that, you know, if these ones have all these dangerous side effects, maybe there's a more effective anti-inflammatory out there that would actually help these people a little bit more. Yeah, indeed. In fact, numerous anti-inflammatories have been shown in the, in the research to have beneficial effects on depression, right? And that's the interesting thing. It's like, how do you square those results? You see that the drugs actually are likely acting, or we know that they reduce inflammation, and you see a bunch of evidence suggesting that or really quite conclusively showing that different areas of the brain, brain are inflamed during depression. And there's numerous kind of like uh, biomarkers which could be measured, which indicate neuroinflammation. So 
you see that depression has this inflammatory uh, you know, component. And then you also see that, well, these drugs have an anti-inflammatory effect. I mean, you put two and two together, it seems, you know, there's a good hypothesis for why these are working. And this is why researchers have written several papers about this before. Now, one of the interesting things is that during neuroinflammation, when there is uh, the, the various things can occur when there's the immune system is active in the brain. Well, this changes how it, how it processes the precursors or the precursor amino acids to make neurotransmitters. So to make your neurochemicals, you need the building blocks to make them. Okay. And serotonin is made from tryptophan. Now tryptophan under normal conditions, it will go primarily down one route and that's towards producing serotonin and subsequently melatonin. But under the condition of oxidative stress or when there's an inflammatory insult, what ends up happening is that tryptophan is acted upon and it's diverted away from making those neurochemicals. And it's actually diverted towards making these kind of pro-inflammatory molecules, one's called a uh, quinolinic acid that has been associated with kind of some of these um, problematic effects in the brain. So it's possible that, you know, because there have been some studies which indicate that there is reduced serotonergic function, for instance, might not be serotonin deficiency, but there's a change. There's a modulation in the neural pathways that occur in depression. And one of the reasons for that can be is simply because the brain may be, um, you know, conserving its resources in different ways, um, basically to, to deal with an ongoing threat. Now this ties in with the concept of allostasis and allostatic load. Um, but it also points towards this overarching theory of depression and chronic illness as this uh, it's referred to in the literature as sickness behavior. And if you look in, in nature, you know, mammals, for instance, if they become sick with some kind of an infection, then generally what you will see is, is certain types of behaviors that are consistent that they initiate to conserve as much energy as possible. So one of those is going to be depression or what behavior that mimics depression. And we do see this in humans as well. When you get sick, you generally don't have much motivation to do anything, right? In fact, if you're really sick, if you get the flu, like genuine flu, then actually you just want to get into bed. You don't want to think about anything. You don't want to do anything. You just want to get into bed and stay in bed and go to sleep. Another one is fatigue. You, you feel muscle weakness, lethargy, you feel as though you've got no energy to do anything and also body pains, right? So this can be, uh, this is generally what you, what you experience in the flu. Again, you want to get into bed. And so the concept is, is that when you're sick with an infection, that you have this kind of inbuilt mechanism to slow you down by making you not want to go anywhere, not want to see anyone, not want to talk to anyone, not want to do anything, just get into bed and go to sleep. That's a protective mechanism, which helps us use all of our energy to deal with the potential stressor, which in this case would be an infection and would allow us then to regain our function. And when, you know, if you've had the flu, you notice that as soon as you start to overcome the illness, you start to feel like you've got motivation to do stuff. You know, you can start thinking, you're talking, you're, oh yeah, I actually, I want to get up. I've got energy and I, you know, I, I want to go talk to this person or whatever. So the concept is, is that when the body is under these, these, uh, these, these immune chemicals, the pro-inflammatory cytokines, see the brain has very complex machinery, which can detect very subtle changes in cytokines. And this concept of the inflamed brain Actually, what well, what that is potentially going to do if the brain is chronically inflamed, one of the responses 
might be to induce like a mild form of sickness behavior. And that may be one of the things that we see in depression. Because oftentimes people with depression, they don't only present with depression. They might have fatigue. They might have some body pains or something like that. But at the same time, depression may be this adaptive mechanism, which has kind of been prolonged for, for too, too, long, too long, basically, because the, the thing that they're dealing with is not an acute infection. The thing that they're dealing with is a chronic inflammatory insult in the brain, which the cause is not being addressed. And so they're chronically inflamed. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Huge sense. Yeah. So then the first thing, yeah, go ahead. Go on. <laughs> no, no I was just, I was just going to ask, uh, it seems to me like diet, like the standard American diet would have a huge effect on all that and the lethargy, lack of sleep, and also lack, lack of exercise, lack of, you know, mo movement and motivation to, to kind of work that out, if you, so to speak. So yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point. Um, basically, it begs the question, what can cause neuroinflammation? And really, if you if you look at it, well, there's a couple of things. In fact, there's there's lots of different things that can cause neuroinflammation, but one of those, really one of the key elements to consider is a breakdown of the blood brain barrier. You see that the, the, the brain is, is separate from the body or has a separate circulation from the body, let's say, in that uh, the brain is very selective about what it allows in and what it doesn't allow in. So for instance, what's in your blood, uh, it might be somewhat substantial but you're not going to let a lot of that get into the brain because the brain is highly sensitive to toxins and whatnot so basically when you have a breakdown of the blood brain barrier this allows molecules it's similar to the concept of leaky gut uh it allows molecules which aren't meant to be in into in the brain get into the brain and so there's a couple of things that can cause that i mean one of those is just systemic inflammation so if someone like you said the diet if someone is consistently eating foods which are causing them uh, gut inflammation well there is a, a tie between intestinal permeability so for instance like we've spoken about multiple years ago uh, the concept of consuming gluten and lectins and these other things which can which can break down the gut barrier well that allows things to get into the bloodstream which can then travel through the body promoting this kind of systemic inflammatory environment which then gradually can actually break down or wear away at the blood brain barrier you start getting stuff getting into the brain and that sets off the alarm bells right sets off the alarm bells so really diet um exercise is is i mean exercise is important because it's actually one of the things which is improving the protection that the barriers have um again it could be toxins so for instance uh you know, you look at Alzheimer's disease, like we were talking about last, 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 last show, that is, is a characteristic sign of a, a leaky blood brain barrier. In fact, many, mm. many of the cases, they show this neuroinflammatory uh, component, but one, uh, one thing to consider is that a lot of the things that we talk about in other shows, the toxins, the plastics, the heavy metals, the glyphosate, this kind of stuff does have a direct kind of uh, neuroinflammatory effect and can you know, cause the kind of things that we're looking at here. So I think it's a conglomeration of everything. Um, and one last thing I'd like to add is, is, is sleep is, is absolutely uh, essential for this because during sleep is, is one of the main times that you're actually clearing out a lot of the waste products of metabolism from the brain. It's how you detox the brain is via sleep. And so during sleep, you've got this stuff called cerebrospinal fluid, 
and you've got the the way that you're clearing out from the brain is going through and uh, the glymphatic system is only identified like uh, last decade uh, the glymphatic system which is like a network of of lymph ducts which are very specific for the brain and this happens like a lot of it happens at nighttime so Again, movement is really important for that. So what do people do? They live sedentary lives. They eat junk food diets. They Their diets are filled with toxins. They're exposed to God knows how many toxins. They're chronically stressed. All of this can quite adequately wear away the protective mechanisms of the barriers which are lining the gut and lining the brain, which can allow things to get in, which can contribute towards a chronic inflammatory response. Yeah. Simple as that. Very interesting. I suppose stealth infections as well could be part Without of the picture. Doubt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Stealth infections, systemic stealth infections, gut infections, all of that stuff. Uh, one thing which does uh, trigger this kind of, has a very pro-inflammatory effect is lipopolysaccharides. So that's produced by um, certain types of bacteria. That is one of the things that can get in through the gut, get into the bloodstream and have ne- negative effects on the, on the brain as well. But yeah, like you said, if you've got Lyme disease or Bartonella, Babesia, anything like that, and it makes its way into the central nervous system, boom, there you go. That's your neuroinflammation. I remember um, when I was working in a health food store many years ago, um, St. John's wort, was said to be uh, an herb that worked very well for depression. <clears throat> but the pharmaceutical guys were always like, they just didn't believe it because it had been studied and they said it doesn't have any effect on serotonin. They're like, there's no there's no way that this helps with, uh, it's just a placebo. There's no way that this helps with uh, depression because it doesn't affect serotonin at all. Well, I mean, there, there's your answer right there. I mean, what they were saying is that St. John's wort can't work because it doesn't affect depression instead of being like, well, St. John wort works, and there were studies that showed it did, then maybe depression doesn't have anything to do with serotonin. Well, it doesn't have anything to do with it. You know what I'm saying, though? Maybe the, ser- yeah. the low serotonin is not the driving factor of um, depression. Maybe uh, St. John's wort actually has an anti-inflammatory effect in the brain, and that's how it's effective. Right. Yeah, indeed. Unfortunately, like uh, if if researchers were curious or if they had maybe a lot of the freedom that many of them would like to have and they weren't, you know, restrained by uh, popular opinion and research funding, we might see more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's not like it's coming back to the original uh, topic of the show it's this isn't a new finding there's people who've been suggesting this and talking about it like you said erica uh years yeah kelly brogan she's been going on about this for a long time as well um and done some excellent work on it but unfortunately it's uh it's not been taken up by psychiatry and i wonder why why do you think what do you guys think that is? <laughs> the old school like our way the highway plus a huge money maker i mean it's a huge money maker i mean i think years ago we did anatomy of an epidemic by robert whitaker he's written a lot about it too and it's just i i think that we are living in a culture where people want 
one solution to their problem. And unfortunately, there comes at the end of a needle or in a pill, and that's it. And so I do think it's kind of interesting, like this week's show and last week's show, that in both these articles were carried in the Daily Mail, which is again, like kind of mainstream media, like all these things that we've been talking about for years, they're like, oh, by the way, this might not really work. And you're like, I swear we've been reading about that for years. <laughs> and uh, it's almost like now because of the COVID crazy and all that, like these, these researchers are actually starting to get some time interest because people have lost faith in the uh, medical mafia paradigm. Yeah. You know, like all of a sudden people are like, mm, maybe not, maybe, you know, that's not the answer. So I, I think it's good. I just find it interesting. It's like connecting those dots. Yeah, that is an interesting observation. You know, just in the past like couple of weeks, we've seen two major dogmas in medicine mm -hmm. basically be questioned and they've both made major headlines. Yeah. It's like, that's quite uncommon. You know, the serotonin theory of depression and the beta amyloid plaque theory of, uh, of Alzheimer's basically taken down in one fell swoop. Mm. I mean, <clears throat> that's, that's a little bit of a coincidence. I don't know what it is, but I think that's a, I never really, I never even considered that Erica, but maybe it is uh, suggestive of the fact that people or even researchers have lost faith in the pharmaceutical system and are starting to question more, you know, like what is actually going on here? Yeah. But they're uh, looking really bad right about now, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And safe and effective now we know is, is a slogan that just means total, complete, utter BS, yeah. you know, I mean, that's just, so I think people are going back and looking at these things going, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, the, all the the pieces don't fit perfectly like we've been claiming they have for years and so i think as always it's it's uh, a bit of optimism in it all <laughs> maybe we'll see some more maybe we'll see some I more hope of these so. uh, sacred cows being slaughtered yeah what else could they knock down that would be very drugs. that would be the next one yeah i think Let's that maybe we can down. yeah statins all of a sudden yeah think that'd be good of course people have been uh speaking out about those for decades but yeah. not in a mainstream way you know uh you know we i mean because we we all don't really watch mainstream but you know maybe it will start to come out yeah indeed <laughs> indeed um well so uh anything else that you guys have to add on this particular sub subject Question everything. Question everything. Especially, especially if you're being prescribed by your TV or magazine. <laughs> yeah. I know you guys don't have that issue as much as we do here in the United States, but boy, it's like on steroids these days. I mean, it's everywhere. Every drug, every possibility, and the vaccine, and the, you know, all of it. It's just crammed down your throat. And I think they're actually uh, making people so annoyed that they're like beginning to question. So. It's a positive. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll see some more. Uh, I'm interested to see what it will be next, actually. Uh, we'll see, I guess. Yeah, okay. Well, um, well, I guess that's that's this week's show then, guys. 
thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you liked the video, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Uh, and if that's everything, then we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.